Lord, we ask that your word may be our guide, your spirit may be our teacher, and your supreme glory may be our great concern. We do ask, Lord, that you will take our lives into your hands, just as we've taken the Bible into our hands and opened it and read it. Lord, we want you to take our lives into your hands and open them. And may we meet with you, our risen Savior and Lord, in this hour together. We pray that it may be a time of great encouragement and stimulus and strengthening for us all, and that you'll send us out rejoicing that we are Christians by your grace and seeking to serve and live for you more and more day by day. So please help me to be clear, help us to keep focused, and speak to us, we pray, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I uh, left university, my first job was uh, school teaching, and I taught in an old-style boys' grammar school in uh, the south of England. Uh, this was the 60s. It was all very traditional and uh, very structured. And um, one of the things we had to do was write school reports. And we, I suppose the younger members of staff in the common room, we had a sort of competition, really, to see who could write either the most vague and meaningless report or perhaps the most um, incriminating report. And a friend of mine who taught chemistry wrote in one boy's report, this term he has lost three textbooks and two exercise books. As he never opened the former and wrote nothing of interest in the latter, this has made very little difference. <laughs> uh, but the reports had to be signed by the headmaster before they went out, and this report was returned to the common room as being unacceptable, but it was true. Um, <clears throat> and then, as you uh, go on, and uh, I got married, and we had our own children, and then there's that wonderful thing called parents' evening that you go to, and you get reports on what your own children are doing. And I never shall forget going one evening and meeting the physics teacher, um, who said to me, oh, yes, Mr. Jackman, yes. Well, there is more to life than physics. And, <laughs> and I thought, hmm, this doesn't augur very well. And uh, uh, we were in a GCSE year, I think, you know. Yes, but what is my son going to do in uh, GCSE? Why do I tell you all this? Well, because it's very easy for pupils in school to be distracted. The physics teacher said, oh, I see your son looking out of the window in the lab at the cricket pitch longingly. There's more to life than physics. But Paul is concerned that the Christians in Colossae may be easily distracted, that they will forget what he's taught them, that they will be um, really seduced by other sorts of teaching which seem to offer something much more exciting, much more fulfilling than what they think they have got from the Apostle. And of course, because the Apostle Paul's ministry is totally Christ-centered, then if they do that, they're going to be moving away from Jesus rather than growing in knowledge and love of him. So I put at the beginning in the intro, Jesus plus and Jesus minus, just to remind you that, and I've been around in the Christian life now for a long time, I have seen so many things come and go which were Jesus plus ideas. Jesus plus this experience, Jesus plus that discipline, Jesus plus this attitude. And what they promise always is a supernormal Christian life, that it will lift you up to another level. 
And uh, what it actually gives you is Jesus minus and a subnormal Christian life because what it is saying is Jesus is not in himself enough. He isn't the fullness. He isn't sufficient. As soon as you start to add something to Jesus, you're actually subtracting from Jesus. And that means that your Christian life will not be as fulfilled as it should be. It will be, in that sense, subnormal. So today's key phrase, or this session's key phrase, back in verse 7, is the one that I want us to use as our way in to the passage. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Have you become easily distracted? Are you looking out of the window when God is teaching you? Have you got to the stage where you don't really open the book very much and you're not really concerned about it? It's ever so easy for people to be looking for fresh experiences, something exciting, something that seems to be going to solve all our problems. But it can be such a delusion. Do you remember how in the passage before lunch we saw in chapter 2 verse 4, Let no one deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, plausible arguments, attractive delusions. They were all the rage, apparently, in Colossae, and we'll see some of them in our second half in this talk. But the very first verse of the passage now spells it out with crystal clarity. The gospel is to transform us, it's to transform our mind and heart and will, But there is a great danger, the danger of drift, which is caused by 2.8, people taking you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. If you want to do a little um, sort of health check test on your spiritual life, think about those three categories, the mind, the heart, and the will. Because that's the way that we grow. First of all, God sows the truth in our minds. We need to understand the truth. That doesn't mean that it's intellectual and academic, but it means that we need to give our minds to God and we need to allow God to think his thoughts in our minds. If we are in Christ, then the thoughts of Jesus will be what he wants to place in our minds. Now, of course, an awful lot of the day we're thinking about, did we feed the cat and did we turn the gas off and things like that. And not, I'm not trying to be super spiritual, but I'm just saying that our mind should be governed by <clears throat> the truth of Christ as it is revealed in Scripture. But it's very easy to be a mind Christian and for it not to translate into our lives. And that's the great danger because then we'll just be sort of intellectually convinced but not really living Christian lives. Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the minister at Westminster Chapel for many years, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, in his book, Preaching and Preachers, he says, the truth of God goes through the mind to the heart to activate the will. Through the mind, so you've got to receive it with your mind. We've got to think when we come to church, we turn our minds on, not off. And it goes through the mind to the heart. You remember we said this morning, the control center of the personality, where you make your decisions, where you determine your course of action. And as the truth in the mind roots itself in the heart, it will exhibit its reality in your will, because you'll want to do what God is saying through his word uh, we should be doing. So just think about those three areas. Are there areas of blockage in my mind? Are there things I don't accept, don't like, don't want God to be saying to me? What about my heart? Is it really softened towards God? 
It's a very telling verse in Psalm 97 that says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now, all I have to do to harden my heart is listen to God's voice and do nothing about it. If you just listen to the Bible, listen to a preacher, read the Bible for yourself, and you do nothing about it, your heart will naturally harden. Because by nature, I'm a sinful person. I will resist God's truth. I just have to do nothing in order to put another layer of hardness onto my heart. But if my heart is softened, and that's the Holy Spirit's work, that's why we pray that he'll work through his word to soften our hearts, then as I receive the word of God into my heart, it will translate into my will, into action. So I think that's a useful little health check. What about the mind? What about the heart? What about the will? Am I doing what God tells me to do? Um, In the strength, of course, that he supplies, which we looked at this morning. So let's pick it up then at this important verse 8 in chapter 2, which establishes for us that there is a gulf here between two different modes of action. One is what he describes as depending on human tradition in the middle of the verse, and the other, by contrast, rather than, is on Christ. So here are two foundations, if you like. We were thinking about that this morning. Here is how we are going to be established in the faith or strengthened in the faith, secure, stable, settled, by not following human tradition, but by being built on in Christ. And that is why they and we need to be strengthened in the faith through that Christ-centered teaching ministry that Paul saw as his life's work that we were looking at this morning, And that must be the major responsibility of everyone who serves in God's flock. If you're leading a Bible study group, teaching the children, youth work, whatever it is, our responsibility is to work together so that that gospel shapes our lives. We need to be taught the faith. And we need to be taught how to be established, strengthened in it. And then we need to put that teaching into practice so that it becomes the established pattern of our thinking and our behavior. And we need to do all that because the empty deceit of human tradition will always be providing plausible distractions and alternative attractions. So let's just think for a moment about the structure of this passage. Verse 8 is, I think, the key verse that takes us right down to the end of chapter 2, and the rest of the chapter expounds verse 8, but it does it in reverse order. The faith according to Christ, which is the end of verse 8, rather than on Christ, you see, there's this contrast. If we're going to be strengthened according to Christ, well, verses 9 to 15 teach us what that's all about. Both objectively in what Christ has done for us and subjectively in how we live in him. Both of those aspects are vital. But then verses 16 to 23 take the other half of the verse, the first half of verse 8, and they expose to us what he means by the human traditions, which are hollow and deceptive philosophy. And he's explaining that deceit, which is distracting the Colossians and in danger of ruining the church because they're wanting to add to Christ um, in a way that actually demeans him and his work. 
So in the two sections of the passage, we'll learn what is the faith in which we're to be established and how to resist the counterfeits which are all around us. And all this constitutes the normal Christian life. Let's look at it then under these two headings. First of all, the content of the teaching, and if you want to sum that up, I think it's those three words, nothing is lacking. See to it that no one takes you captive. That's a vivid phrase, isn't it? The danger is that you could be taken hostage, that you could lose your spiritual liberty. Um, it's an image from a conquering army that comes in and takes away your, um, your treasures and your people, makes them captives. You remember how the Assyrians did that in the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, and then the Babylonians did it to Judah and Jerusalem. They took them captive. They took away all their treasures. They took away many of the people to exile. And he says, you could be in danger of that because there is a conqueror who is seeking to disrupt God's church, and it will be expressed particularly in terms of the world's wisdom, that attitude of the world, which is given validity in the world's eyes and even credibility, though Paul says it's hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, please, this is not a prohibition against studying philosophy. <laughs> We need Christians who really understand the culture and who know what the thinking is and why it's there. But human philosophy will always be antithetical to Christ because it's a system of human wisdom which is fallen, because humanity is. And the system of human wisdom seeks to make sense of life and set up rules about how to live successfully without having any place for Jesus Christ as Lord. So, what he means by the human hollow and deceptive philosophy is trying to make sense of the world by your own senses and human traditions handed down from one generation to the other, and not by revelation from God, not according to Christ. So, human philosophy is speculative rather than substantive, and that's why he describes it as being hollow, empty, has no basis in ultimate reality, because the ultimate reality is God's sovereign rule in the world, Christ's total authority. And human philosophy, think of our cultural norms today, denies all that. It's empty. Because though it promises so much, it actually is deceptive, it doesn't produce. It's hollow and deceptive philosophy. And he's warning us, not because it just ignores Christ, but because it dethrones Christ and provides an alternative to Christ. And at its root, the elements that control it are the world and the flesh and the devil. But of course, in the first century, philosophy was very distinguished. It was highly valued in the Mediterranean world, in the Greek and Roman culture. It was a very important ingredient in life then. And it's just the same now. It can be a religious philosophy, it can be a totally secular philosophy, but it's an alternative worldview that has no place for God. It's, if you like, the intellectual climate of our age. 
And Paul says, see to it that it doesn't make you a captive. See to it that it doesn't distort your thinking. Because, well, if you don't see to it, it will certainly take you over. It's very powerful, can be very attractive, but remember it's hollow and it's deceptive because it depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. So he wants to teach us to recognize this subversive opponent, this danger, because it is not according to Christ. And then he teaches the positives which will expose the deceit of human alternatives. That's always the way the apostle works. He teaches the truth, and the error is exposed by the truth. And as the error is exposed, it will ultimately fall. That's how we bring up our children, I hope, that we don't just tell them that they're wrong all the time and these are your errors. We teach them the truth. As you teach the truth to your children, day by day, week by week, then the errors are exposed as they come up. And children, of course, constantly facing these in various ways. But the way to tackle it is to teach the truth because it's the truth that expels and overcomes the error. And not surprisingly, the teaching of the truth is described at the end of verse 8 as being on Christ or according uh, the foundation of Christ. It's a slightly different translation here. More literally, not, it is the truth according to Christ in him. Now, we see that in three ways. Firstly, the principle in verses 9 and 10. And these are glorious verses. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. There's the principle. You have been filled in him. Then in verses 11 and 12, you get the practice. You have been uh, raised to life in Christ, verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. There's the practice. Filled with him, raised with him. And the outcome, verse 15, is that you share the victory. He's disarmed the powers and authorities, and he's triumphing, triumphed over them in the cross. Or you'll see the footnote says it could be in him. Well, the cross is, of course, the great demonstration of his sovereign power. So whether it's in him or in the cross, it's the same point that's being made. You've been filled with him. You were also raised with him. You share with him in his victory, the principle, the practice, the outcome. And after verse 8, verses 9 and 10 are, are like one of those vistas that suddenly open up in front of you. I think it's on the M40. There's a place where you drive on the M40 if you're going west, and there's sort of cliffs almost. They've obviously carved the motorway through the hillside, and there are these big cliffs on either side, and it's quite narrow. And then suddenly, when you get to the end of it, it opens out, and in front of you is Salisbury Plain and a great vast vista, the most amazing thing that you, can, that you suddenly come upon. And I think verses 9 and 10, are, they remind me of that. It's... It's a repeat, of course, of chapter 1, verse 19. If you just look across there for a moment, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Now we are told, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead, of the deity, lives. And here's the uh, addition, in bodily form. 
And notice it's a continuous present tense. It's not saying that it happened when Jesus was on earth and isn't happening now. It's saying that the Jesus, Jesus who was incarnate is the one who died on the cross, is the one who's risen, and in his ascended physical body, in the glory of the Father, as the trailblazer of his people, Jesus is the one in whom now all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. But I think verse 10 is even more overwhelming and wonderful. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Because we're in him, we share in that fullness. All the qualities of Jesus can be increasingly ours as we grow in godliness and Christ-likeness, rooted and being built up in him, that's the normal Christian life, and now strengthened. But strengthened how? Well, with faith, in the faith. That is, having faith in what you were taught. That is the gospel, of course. It's not faith in faith. Lots of people say they have a faith, but what they're really believing in is, has no objective reality. No, what we put our faith in is what you were taught. And what you were taught is the gospel of Christ. So as we put our faith in Christ, so we are strengthened through that faith. And uh, in that way, we become secure and um, well-grounded and founded and, uh, and given power and strength to go on serving and to go on living for him. And none of the hostile powers that he's overcome can prevent that life of Christ from flowing in to our experience. When I was a pastor in Southampton, uh, an illustration that was very... Um, appropriate geographically to our church there was Southampton Water where the, there are, um, th where the tide flows into this pretty extensive area, this estuary and um, sort of uh, harbour really. And as the tide flows into Southampton Water, it will of course penetrate all the little inlets, all the little um, uh, side channels and so on, unless it is blocked by something human. So some guys had little boat building businesses and they had a sort of dry dock and they blocked off the tide uh, so that it couldn't get into the dock and the dock was dry and there was none of the tide, none of the water in the dock. And it's a bit like that in the Christian life, you see. The fullness of Christ will flow into every part of our lives except where we block it. And if we say to Jesus, yeah, okay, you're my Lord, but not that, or, yes, Lord, okay, um, I know I ought to put this into practice, but I don't want to. I'm not going to do it. Then what's happening there is that we are no longer, in terms of our main verse, continuing to live your lives in Jesus as Lord. See, it's not just living your life in Christ. It's living your life in Christ as Lord. That's where the battle is, isn't it? That's where the struggle is. And that's why I think it's so important for us to realize that the principle is that all the fullness is in God and we've been brought to fullness in Christ but we can block it off if we refuse to let God be God, refuse to let Jesus be Lord in some area of my life. And um, that is foolish because verse 15 says he's already disarmed the powers and authorities they don't have any power over us except what we give them. And I give the power to those hostile forces of Satan 
and uh, sin and the devil, uh, and the flesh, I mean. I give the power to them back into their hands when I say, well, Lord, yes, but no, Lord. Um, You know, there are two words that you cannot say together. No, Lord. If he telling us to do something, then it's either yes, Lord, or no, not Lord. And you cannot say no, Lord. Simon Peter said it three times in the New Testament. Uh, He said it when uh, Jesus told him that uh, he was going to go to the cross after he confessed that he was the Christ. No, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He said it again when Jesus, in the upper room on the night he was betrayed, took the bowl and washed their feet. No, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Well, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part. And he even said it as the spirit-filled leader of the apostles after the ascension of Christ and the gift of the spirit when he received the vision, you remember, of the sheet with the unclean animals in it and he was told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I have never done that. But of course, it was a message to go to the Gentiles whom he'd regarded as unclean and he's called to the house of Cornelius to share the gospel with the Roman centurion. Three times he says, no, Lord. So be encouraged if you've said, no, Lord. There is a way back, (laughs) but you've got to make that way back. It won't be something that will help, you know, that will just go away. It's something that we need to really deal with. So there's the principle, and the practice works from that. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, So it's not human philosophy in verse 8, and it's not human religion in verse um, 10, uh, verse 11. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, for us, it may seem strange to introduce this idea of circumcision in verse 11, but there may well have been plausible arguments brought into the Colossian church by Jewish teachers that if you wanted to enjoy the fullness of God's blessings in the Messiah, Jesus, then you Gentiles really ought to be circumcised because that's the sign of being sons of Abraham. And the Jewish teachers, we know, followed Paul's ministry around the Mediterranean, and they often brought this message. You've been brought into the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham. Well, then surely you should receive the covenant sign which is circumcision. Paul will have none of that. Paul says the physical circumcision of the infant Israelite, a circumcision made by hands, was only a temporal, physical pointer to something much greater that is spiritual and eternal, which is the putting off of the body of the flesh, which has come about in Christ. Translated in the NIV as your whole self ruled by the flesh. That is what Jesus did when you came to him. That is the circumcision without hands. It's the circumcision of the heart, which is devoted to God. And the sign is not in the body, uh, not in the physical body of circumcision. The sign for us is in baptism, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God. So the fulfillment in baptism and faith in Jesus means that the signpost is irrelevant, it's redundant. 
The outward sign is nothing to do with circumcision of the body, it's to do with baptism. But that in itself is only an outward sign. The reality is inward and spiritual. Uh, it's likely that baptism in the early church was usually by immersion. And if it was, then the symbol of being submerged under the hostile, life-threatening element of water is an appropriate picture in verse 12 for burial, buried with him in baptism. That old way of living, that old self ruled by the flesh, put to death on the cross, buried in baptism as you confessed your faith in Christ in that way. But of course, that wasn't the end of the story. The candidate who is buried under the water in baptism emerges, otherwise your church growth will be nil. The candidate emerges and raised from the old life to live a new life, a new life that is in verse 12, with Christ through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So you see, this is the practice. The old self nailed to the cross, the new life, the life of Jesus, and uh, uh, experienced in our own um, devotion and faith. We were buried with him, we were raised with him, We've been made alive together with him, verse 13 says. God made you alive with Christ. So all of this is what the gospel has brought to us. But the connection is faith. Nothing is lacking. What is lacking, if anything, is, is, on, is only faith. It's the obedience. It's our end. Everything is there in Christ and through Christ. But it's plugging in daily to that resource to all the fullness of the risen life of Christ, which is the normal Christian experience. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that I don't have anything to do. It means that the dimension of power and ability comes from God himself. I, I know one of the things that is often taught is, let go and let God. You know, you can't live this Christian life. Well, that's certainly true. You just have to let go and let God do it. But you see, if you put it that way, you're in danger of what Jim Packer used to call jacuzzi Christianity. That you just simply lay back in the water and the warm bubbles and so on and let Jesus do everything for you. That isn't the picture that we're begin, being given here at all. All the resources come from Christ, but we have to wrestle and fight and pray. There's a fight to be fought and a race to be run. But the energy, do you remember chapter 1, verse 29? The energy powerfully works in us, and it's from Christ. So it's not let go and let God. It's come to God for that energy to transform you and enable you to be able to live not according to the distractions and the delusions of human tradition, but according to Christ. And then verses 13 to 15 spell out the outcome. It makes clear to us, this section, the freedoms which are characteristic of our new life in Christ. Wonderful verses. We were dead in our sins, verse 13 says, our trespasses. But God made you alive with Christ. All those deviations from God's perfect character expressed in his law, all those trespasses had to be dealt with if ever we were going to know life. And that death sentence that was upon us because of our sinfulness has now been cancelled, verse 14 says. That's why he forgives us his sin, our sins, because he's cancelled 
the charge of our legal indebtedness. Uh, if you like, that's a sort of certificate of our bankruptcy, which Paul pictures as a bond with all its legal powers. You are in debt. You have this to pay. And as we stand before God, of course we do. We have more sins than we ever could be aware of that we're indebted to God. We have a price to pay. It stood against us, verse 14 says. It condemned us quite justly and quite rightly because we haven't let God be God in our lives. But here's the gospel, you see. He's cancelled the charge. Why? He has taken it away, verse 14b. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, when somebody was crucified in the first century, the charge was nailed to the cross. So, in Jesus' case, remember Pilate had put up over the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was what he was charged with. But here Paul's image is this, that your charge, my charge, our indebtedness, the list of transgressions, which is so enormous and which requires the just punishment of you and me because of our sins, Jesus has taken that and nailed it to the cross, which means that he's bearing the punishment in our place. That just punishment. He has died for us, and so the charges are wiped out, and the debt is paid. It stood against us and condemned us, but he took it away. He nailed it to the cross. And in doing that, he conquered all the hostile powers, the devil with his accusations, and his uh, unbridled power of evil within human lives. He's disarmed the powers and authorities, and he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Well, of course, the cross was a public spectacle of shame and um, horror and terrible cruelty. But look, Jesus is not the one who is suffering that permanently. He suffered it once for all, for our sins. But in doing that, he disarmed the powers and authorities. And they are the ones who are now the public spectacle because he has triumphed over them by the cross. Our debt has been paid and we are set free. And the open shame of Jesus as he offered that sinless life to the torment and degradation of the cross is not the capitulation of a helpless victim. It's the triumph of the conquering Lord who is the king of the cosmos so that even his enemies are put to shame at the cross. One commentator says the cross becomes the victory chariot. I like that. The victory chariot is the triumphant general coming back to Rome having conquered uh, the hostile powers and the cross is the Victory chariot, it's the means by which Jesus overcame all those forces of evil. So to be established in the faith, strengthened in the faith, means to be committed in my mind to this worldview and to be drawing in practice on this powerful Lord and rescuer, to be accessing by faith the uh, grace of God in Christ and asking him to pour all his energy uh, into my life and experience. Just a moment or two uh, before we finish, let's look at the second section. 
we've rightly spent most of our time on the content of the teaching, but look now at the consequence of the teaching. If nothing is lacking, if everything is there in Christ, already yours potentially, that's the normal Christian life, then the consequences are, therefore, verse 16, there is nothing to add. Verse 16 now is very obvious, isn't it? Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival and so on. So, firstly, the consequence is let no one judge you. And then secondly, in verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility, etc., disqualify you. So let no one judge you and let, lo let no one disqualify or cheat you. Um, you see what he's saying. In verse 16, people are passing judgment on religious things that you do or don't do. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Now, those were the sorts of things that the Jews would judge you for. You know, you're not keeping the festivals or you shouldn't be eating this or you shouldn't be drinking that. But verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. They're not the reality. They are only just a sort of precursor, really, a, a foreshadowing. The reality, however, is found in Christ. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of all the festivals of the Old Testament. He's the one who brings you into relationship with God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to a temple. Christ is the temple. So don't let anyone judge you. Don't go back to rules and regulations. Um, uh, about religious festivals and so on. And don't let anyone cheat you, or um, uh, as verse 18 says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility disqualify you. Now it's striking, isn't it, that what is likely to destabilize the Colossian Christians is other Christians looking down on them and judging them for what they're not doing. See, if there's something that God requires, some observance he wants from us, then he must disapprove of it if we don't do it. And if he disapproves, well, we disapprove of the other people who are not doing it. That means that they're to be condemned and avoided, even though they may claim to have the same fundamental faith, well, they're not quite up to the mark. I used to know a Christian who used to say, oh, well, he, and she, he or she is NQWWW. Not quite what we want. And uh, that sort of judgmentalism is deadly in the church. Yes, we've got to follow the commands of Christ, but we're not in a position to judge others and to disqualify others. We need to look to our own hearts. And the particular issues in, Col in Colossia are clearly spelt out here. There's the ritual religious observances of verse 16, and there's the asceticism and abstinence of verse 18 following superior worship experiences as well, joining the angelic worship of heaven perhaps, visions personally received. Some of these are things that are on offer today. I remember sitting in a church once hearing a preacher say, you could have an angel come and sit on your bed and teach you the truth of God. Ah, I've got a Bible. Some of these issues may occur today. They may appear to people to be really much more exciting, but it puts those who espouse them above those who don't. 
See, it's really saying my way is superior. It achieves goals that you are bound to fall short of. I'm a better Christian than you are. And so then the church is divided again and some new controversy over secondary issues blows up and church history is full of it. And it's all around us in contemporary evangelicalism. James Dunn puts it like this. He says it's an essentially sectarian attitude which is so confident of its own rightness and success that any other systems, especially those most closely related to it, must be judged at best inadequate if not dangerously defective. So it could be Hellenistic philosophy, could be Judaistic religion. Both essentially are human in origin. Both are fleshly in their indulgence and both diminish the person and work of Jesus, the Lord, for and in his people. Beware of this, he says, because that spirit, both individually and in the church, will be totally destructive. Well, we know the answer to it, don't we? The answer is verse 17. The reality is found in Christ. He's the true substance. We see it again in verse 19. These people have lost connection with the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body grows as God causes it to grow. He grows his people. He grows his church. To look for any other sort of growth is to slip away from Christ. But the crowning argument at the end is that none of these things produce anything. Since you died with Christ, verse 20, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you conform to its rules? Here are religious rules. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And all these human rules, which do get imposed, we can think in our groups how we can fall into that trap. What rules do we put in order to judge others and to disqualify others, which are not biblical things, but human inventions? These rules, verse 23 which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, they're based on merely human commands and teachings. Verse 22, that is. And then the last verse, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom because, well, there's discipline in it, there's humility, it appears, there's a harsh treatment of the body, asceticism, all these things. That's going to produce a more godly Christian. No, says Paul. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They do not have the power to do it because they're human and humanity is flawed and fallen. They're worldly regulations. So how can attitudes to perishing things bring about eternal blessings? It's just a self-made religion and it indulges the flesh which it promises to subjugate because actually what it's saying is I won't allow the flesh to be crucified and raised with Christ. And so he says avoid it. Avoid it, because Christ is our life. So it's as we run to him and put our faith and trust in him that we experience that liberty which the false teaching, the Jesus plus ideas, is constantly taking away from the people of God. And so I want to end by just reading the first four verses which will be part of tomorrow morning's passage. But it sums it up beautifully Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's a position of power and authority. 
Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. That's not what it's all about. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, of course, there are things that we have to put to death, and the rest of the passage will teach some of that. But you see, the principle is, Christ is your life. He's the one in whom, Christ in you, and you in him, the power, the ability is there to be able to live the normal Christian life, which sets its mind on things above, which lives in this world, not removed from it, but right in the middle of it, active in it, as someone who belongs to another citizenship, to another country. Set your hearts on things above. Well, that's tomorrow morning, and I won't go any further into that. But as we finish, this is how we're going to be strengthened in the faith. Nothing is lacking. Don't go looking for the extra to Jesus, because there isn't one. There's nothing to add. But don't let anyone unsettle you. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them uh, disqualify you on the grounds of human spiritual fantasies or rules and regulations. Christ is our life. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in the midst of all these human words, your word will become really clear and powerful to us. Please help us to take it into our minds and hearts. Help us to soften our hearts as your spirit enables us. Help us to have minds that are open to know more of your truth. And especially we pray that you will empower our wills to put it into practice in our lives. And as we meet to discuss these things now, just in a few minutes, we pray that you'll help us in our discussions to help one another to grow nearer to you and to be more conformed to the likeness of your Son as your word has revealed it to us. And we pray that you will save us from thinking that there is any other way in which we can grow to that maturity apart from Christ and his work in us and his work for us. So please go with us now and strengthen us and equip us by your spirit to put your word into practice in our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.